Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. So our theme that the message is going to meet nests within what you saw on the bumper, the power of one. And I believe in your program it says, I'm going to be speaking on the power of the one that looks in the mirror, like it said in the bumper. Uh, But to personalize it a little bit more to the message that we're going to receive, I'd call it the power of one who knows the power of the law in the converting of souls. Or, as will make sense to us a little bit further on, and this is an elevator speech that you can tell friends that asked you, what was the sermon about? You can say, crooked walls hate plumb lines. Because whenever a, pl- a crooked, whenever a plumb line's around, someone's going to start tinkering to make the crooked wall straight. Good morning, um, and good morning to those of you online. I'm sincerely grateful to Pastor Andrew for his invitation to give the message this morning, but when he invited me, I was not. And he might recall, if he watches a tape of this, I said No. You just delivered a wonderful Easter sermon, and I am in no way going to follow and act like that. But, as I was preparing this message, and you may remember this, he gave a sermon two weeks ago that began with words to the effect of, so much is going on in the world, I'm going to vary from my habit of opening the sermon with an anecdote or a humorous story, or a joke. Do you remember that? You may also remember, and I'm going to read from the notes that I took that Sunday, he said something like this. The tragedies of the world today are the result of, and now he said, remember this? Foundry Church, tuck in your toes because I don't want to step on any of them. The tragedies of the world are no small part a result of a failing church. Brothers and sisters, Andrew didn't step on my toes. He pierced me to the heart. I was inspired to prepare the message that's delivered today. I'm 72 years old as I stand before you today, and Lord willing, this week I'll turn 73. I have lived through subtle changes in how the word is presented to the detriment of truth, especially among modern evangelists. I believe that I have seen the failing church grow, and I do not intend to, with this message, contribute to that. My generation and I must take responsibility for what Andrew was starting to talk about. Now, I'm not a leader in this congregation. I'm a layman who is filling the pulpit for the fraction of an hour. If I misspeak and offend anyone, it is not between you and me. It's between me and the Almighty Maker who hears every word I'm saying and knows my thoughts and inclinations of my heart. So don't tuck in your toes. Put on your steel-toed boots and break out your Bibles. Put plenty of lick on your fingers so you can change the pages of the the Holy Gospel, and be good Bereans as you are called to be. 
Take a moment, please, to turn to Psalm 19 and verse 7. Now, before you can continue to turn to that if you like, but um, I'm not there yet. Before I begin the message, I would like to give credit to Major Ian Thomas for an analogy of the plumb line and to Ray Comfort for a couple of statistics in the story about the speeding ticket and two men on a plane. First, some statistics. From the 1970s to the present, church records from across the United States have documented a horrific fallaway rate from when someone makes their initial commitment to Christ and they live out their life according to that, that promise. The, the rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90 percent. Now, in the year I retired from the Marine Corps, not too many years ago, a major denomination in the United States reported that in one year they could claim 294,000 lives being changed for Christ. Unfortunately, they could only find 14,000 in their fellowship. That means, you do the math with me, 280,000 of these decisions had fallen away. Now, six years ago, when I began teaching a worldview class to a bunch of homeschooling high schoolers, and we used the text from Summit Ministries, a trilogy of texts called Understanding the Faith, Understanding the Times, and Understanding the Culture, these statistics were reinforced. And not only that, but added to it was damage that was being done by three atheist and agnostic professors, including, brace yourselves, you might remember this name, John Dewey, who is often looked at as the father of the American public education system. And I'll, and I'll take a quote from Understanding the Times, who wrote and signed a document called the Humanist, Humanist Manifesto. And that manifesto's goal was to develop a new religious movement based on science and inspirational faith to replace the dogmatic old attitudes promoted by theistic religions. The motto of the American Humanist Association is good without God. This movement that was in the 30s wasn't too far, almost coincided with, to, to, to replace theology with science and, and, or to at least create some tension between the two, corresponds with a subtle change that was occurring with modern Christian evangelism about the time of the change between the 19th and 20th century. Now, I wasn't there for that, but I read about it, okay? Um, for some reasons, evangelists at that time were moving away from a biblical model of evangelism, which we'll discuss in the message today, and moving towards something else that we might call fulfillment-based evangelism. Jesus will meet all of your needs. Now, if we... Um, now... I know why I put that note in there. When I talk about modern evangelism, I am not in any way, shape, or form talking about anything that Pastor Andrew preaches when he stands in this spot. But I am talking about what a lot of our friends hear elsewhere. But if we take the time to study the gospel proclamations 
of men like Finney, Whitfield, Spurgeon, and Moody, we will notice that they follow the example that the Lord Jesus Christ did in teaching the law to the proud and grace to the humble. Think about the rich young ruler. He came before Jesus. He fell on his knee. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or He said, good teacher. Then he got into talking about it. None's good, say God. Why do you call me good? But then Jesus opened up the Ten Commandments. And he says, I've kept all those. In his mind, he had kept all those. But by God's standards, Jesus, when he tells him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all of your belongings. And he went away brokenhearted. And we all feel very bad for him because he looked like a very nice guy. Jesus saw that he was proud at heart. And he had to preach the law to him to, to expose a contrite heart so that he would be able to receive the grace that we receive when we come in faith to the Lord Jesus. So these old guys... Preach the law to the proud and grace to the humble. Just two examples are Jesus to the rich young ruler and when he talked to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him by night, but Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He knew the law, and Jesus could get right to the grace and talk to him about what being born again was all about. But the model is teach the law to the proud and grace to the humble. So my question today is, does the law, the Ten Commandments, have a role in converting people to Christianity? Hey, I've been guilty of thinking of the Ten Commandments as something that I, looked, I learned in Sunday school. They're impossible to keep. We have forgiveness, and I'm not going to dwell on that. This lesson is going to look at that from a completely different light. Does the law have a role in converting people to Christianity? What is the role of the law in converting people to Christianity? Let's turn to Psalm 19.7. Thank you for keeping your fingers on that for so long. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Or, that's King James, or the Amplified Bible, which I usually carry around with me because it's got big print, uh, and it uses... Um, uh, all of the definitions of the Greek words, uh, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the whole person, which I submit is restoring us to what Adam was like before the fall. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, making us the way God intended us to be. So, what is it that's perfect converting the soul? The Bible makes it perfectly clear that the law is perfect converting the soul. The law breaks the hard heart and grace heals the broken heart. The law, according to Romans 7, 12, Romans 7, 12 tells us that the law is holy, righteous, and good. God is holy, righteous, and good. If you transgress the holy, righteous, and good law of the lawgiver, you're sticking the fingers in the you're sticking your finger in the eye of the holy and righteous and good God. Um, okay. 
So to understand how the role of God's law in converting the soul, what it's like, let's take a moment and look at civil law. David, I have good news for you. Someone has paid your $25,000 traffic fee. How does he react? <laughs> He's looking at me and he's saying, that's foolishness. I don't have a $25,000 traffic fee. And the fact that you would say that I have one is offensive to me because I don't think I've broken any laws. Okay? Now, what if I were to present the same information to David like this? <clears throat> David, I've got good news for you. Today, you weren't aware of it, the law clocked you at 55 miles an hour going through a zone that was set aside specifically for a blind children's convention. There were 10 signs that said the maximum speed limit in this zone is 15 miles an hour. You ignored them all, drove through at 55 on the wet streets that we have out here today. You did something that was very dangerous. And the law was just about to step in and take its course and take $25,000 out of your future bank account when someone stepped into the courtroom and paid your fine for you. Now, can you see that we have to tell someone that they have a problem before the good news is good news? Yeah, I did that with my, my notes. I got to jump forward now. If I don't provide instruction that you've broken the law, the good news won't be good news. But once the instruction has been provided, the good news will become good news indeed. Now, in the same way, if I approach an impenitent sinner and I say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins, he, it will be foolishness and offensive to him. It'll be foolishness because it doesn't make sense, and it'll be offensive to him because I'm insinuating to him that he's a sinner, and he doesn't really believe that he is. As a matter of fact, he'll be quick to tell me, I'm not so bad. There are a lot of people out there that are worse off than I am. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus with the model that we've been talking about, and I open up the divine law, the Ten Commandments, and show the sinner precisely what he has done wrong, not by man's standards, but by the lawmaker's standards, that he has offended God by violating his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law as a transgressor, then the good news <coughs> of the fine being paid for him will not be offensive to him. It will be the power of God unto salvation. Let's look a little more at what the Bible says about some of the functions of the law of God. I'm going to go through quickly about five scriptural references here, but absorb them into your hearts and, and, and be convinced, as I now am, that the Ten Commandments is not something that we leave in Sunday school because they're too hard to abide by. Romans 3.9, and I'll read, read it to you if you're not there. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world will become guilty before God. So one of the purposes of the law is to stop the sinner's mouth. 
I'm not so bad. I can name three or four of my friends who aren't here at church today. They're worse off than I am. The law is intended to stop the mouth of self-justification and leave the whole world before, guilty before God. Now I'm going to go to Romans 3.20, very briefly. Therefore, by the needs of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So we've got functions of the law. It stops the sinner's mouth, and the law gives the knowledge of sin. 1 John 3.4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth, I can't say it, transgresseth, also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So now law tells us sin is the transgression of the law. There is a role of the law in the converting of the soul. Romans 7.7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And then Paul, who wrote Romans, makes this amazing statement. I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The last verse I'm going to expose to a review with us today regarding the functions of the law is Galatians 3.24. And I really like this one. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified in faith. So another function of the law is to be a schoolmaster that brings you around to realizing that the law brings us to Jesus so that we might be justified by faith. I'm not talking about an intellectual faith. I'm not talking about a faith that says, I believe Jesus lived, I believe he died on the cross. I'm talking about a faith that lets. And you didn't notice this, but while each one of you was coming into the assembly today, I watched you, and nobody picked up their chair and turned it over to see if the legs were screwed on straight. They had intellectual faith in the chair that there's a, there's a chair and I know what it does. But then you demonstrated faith that lets the chair do what it's supposed to do. You sat in the chair. You might have picked up your feet. You demonstrated faith in the chair that it would hold you 28 inches above the floor. Okay? When we are led to Christ to be justified by faith, it's the faith that allows him to do what he says he's going to do, to bring his spirit into us that gives us the encouragement every step of the day when we're picking up our cross daily to turn away from the temptations. Now we can't just say... I'm a little better than everybody else. Now we can say that Jesus Christ is trying in your heart of hearts to make you see sin by the Father's expectations and not by man's. The only thing that we can do for righteousness is create our own self-righteousness, and we know what we're supposed to do with that. Where are we? We just finished Galatians 3.20. Four, the law guides us to Jesus that we may be justified by faith. The law doesn't help us. The law leaves us helpless. The law doesn't justify us. The law just makes us guilty before the judgment of the holy God. The tragedy of much of modern evangelism, as I said earlier, is that somewhere around the turn of the 19th to 20th century, it abandoned this power of the law 
to drive sinners to Christ and had to, submit, had to substitute something else to cause sinners to go to Christ. Much of modern evangelism chose the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will bring you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, everlasting happiness. Now, to illustrate the nature of this very popular unscriptural teaching, I'd like you to listen carefully to this anecdote because the essence of what I'm trying to say pivots on understanding this very point. Two men were on an airplane. The first man was given a parachute and told to put it on, it will improve your flight. Well, he looked at the parachute, it was sitting on the ground. He can't imagine how wearing a parachute is going to improve his flight, but he decided to experimentally put on the parachute to see if the claims that it would improve my flight were correct. As he put it on, he noticed the way, any, any skydivers in here? Anybody jump out of an airplane? Okay. When you strap on a parachute, you become very uncomfortable. You, you tighten it up so that the blood's not circulating anymore. He put on the parachute, and as he put on the straps, he realized that there was weight on his shoulders. And then when he sat back in this comfortable airline seat, he realized he couldn't sit up straight. All right? But that wasn't the end of it. As he glanced around the airplane, he realized that people were starting to giggle. They were starting to laugh at him. That silly man over there is wearing a parachute and a perfectly good airplane. But when they started pointing their fingers at him and laughing out loud, he had enough of it. He leaned forward in his seat. He grabbed the straps. He pulled off the parachute, and he threw it on the ground, and he said, it'll be a long time before anybody will strap one of those things on my back again. Let's look at the second man. The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told, put on the parachute because at any minute, you're going to have to jump 25,000 feet out of this airplane. Immediately, he grabs the, air, uh, the parachute. He puts it on. He doesn't feel the, he doesn't feel the, the uh, weight and the straps. He doesn't realize that it's uncomfortable to sit up straight. His mind is consumed with what, the, what would happen to him if he jumped without the parachute. Thank you for bearing with me through that. You got the story. Let's, let's analyze the motive and the result of each of the passengers' experiences. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve the flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers. He was disillusioned and somewhat embittered about those who had given him the parachute. And as I mentioned, it'll be a long time before someone gets another one of those things on his back. The second man put the parachute on solely to escape the jump, the jump that's to come, and because of his knowledge about what would happen to him without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace of heart knowing that he is safe from certain death. The knowledge... The knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers, and his attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now listen to what much of the modern gospel says. You know I was going here. Put on the Lord Jesus. He will give you peace, joy, fulfillment, everlasting happiness. In other words, 
Jesus will improve the flight. So the sinner responds, and like the first man on the plane, in an experimental fashion, he puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he receive? We know a promise of trials, tribulations, and persecution. So what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus. He's offended for the word's sake. He's disillusioned and bitter, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness, and all he got was trials and humiliation. His bitterness was directed at those who gave him the so-called good news. He becomes another inoculated backslider, worse off than he was before, and is probably in that 280,000 that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. Instead of teaching, Jesus will improve the flight. We should be warning the passengers that they're going to have to jump out of the plane. It is appointed once, once unto men to die, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And when a sinner appreciates the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath to come. And if we are true and faithful witnesses, that's what we'll be preaching. Whether I like it or not, there's wrath to come. God commands all men unto repentance. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in his righteousness. I wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want him judging in my righteousness. I want him judging in his righteousness. The righteousness of God is absolute. And absolute is absolute righteousness is required to meet his standards. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness, but one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is in enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish in the day of wrath. Scriptures warn, riches profiteth not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from evil. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation, but it, it's not legitimate to use these fruits as a draw card for salvation. Well, we've said the law is perfect. We've talked about the function of the law in bringing the conversion of the soul. It's only appropriate that we go one by one through each of the Ten Commandments and discuss them at length. No, uh, I'm not going to do that, but I am going to show them to you in a one-minute and 20-second video clip.
I heard a laugh, and I have to admit, when I saw that video, I thought it was some pretty neat graphics and a nice review, but it was brutal on men. As you see, law number seven, thou shalt not covet. I won't show it again. It was terrible, okay? It was totally biased against men in the video. Okay. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, behold, behold the plumb line. What? Remember what I said at the beginning. Crooked walls hate plumb lines because whenever a plumb line's around, somebody's going to start tinkering to try to make crooked walls straight. Uh, plumb lines, plumb lines appear several times in um, in the Bible. Amos receives a vision: the Lord standing by a wall that has been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in His hand. Isaiah twenty-eight seventeen: I will make justice, justice the measuring line, and righteousness the plumb line. Each time the Bible mentions a plumb line in the Old Testament, it does so with a reference to measuring righteousness and the day of judgment. Um, I might step off camera for just a second because there might be a couple of people here who have never seen a plumb line. Have you ever seen a plumb line before? Okay. So a plumb line has basically been replaced by a level. It's either a wooden piece of wood or a piece of aluminum and there are a couple of bubbles in it and you hold it this way and it's plumb vertical and you hold it this way and it's level. But this preceded the plumb line. It's still used today. I'm demonstrating my love for you because I dropped $6 at Ace Hardware just to get one of these for the, <laughs> for the presentation. Um, and I'm sure Jesus used the plumb line. He was a carpenter. I'm sure he'd used it on more than one occasion. When a wall is not plumb, you find out, and then you have to make the crooked wall straight. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me and give me a little bit more of your indulgence. I want you to imagine that I can use this plumb line, the measure of righteousness, and turn it into a microphone and conduct a man-on-the-street interview with a couple of questions and determine how righteous that man is by his fulfillment of the law of God, by God's standards. Now, what I really want you to do is put yourself in the place of the fictitious man-on-the-street that I'm going to interview right now and answer the questions privately in your own heart, okay? Thanks for bearing with me in advance. Excuse me, sir or ma'am. I have just started a new YouTube station, and I'm going to feature man-on-the-street interviews, but I am terribly afraid of conducting man-on-the-street interviews. Would you please be so kind as to give me three minutes of your time and help me get over this fear? YouTube channel, cool. Videos, am I going to be recorded and posted on YouTube? Yeah, let's do it. Thank you very much for your indulgence. First question, do you think you're a good person? Sure. Why do you think you're a good person? Well, I've got lots of friends. I'm popular. I pay my bills on time. Um, 
and I try to help people out whenever I can. Okay, you're helping me out a great deal by playing along with my role-playing here. I'm starting to get over my apprehension of interviewing a man on the street. Next question. Are you a religious person? Yes. I, I'm a member of a church. I uh, go to church at least once a week on Sunday unless I'm working or I'm sleeping in late from a long night. Um, but I always go on Easter and on Christmas without fail. So, thank you for that. It appears to me that you're a Christian and you might have a familiarity with the Ten Commandments. Do you mind if I go over the Ten Commandments with you? Wait a minute, you're not going to ask me to recite the Ten Commandments and put them in the right order by number and all that? No, 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 I'm not going to do that. But since you said you were a good person, I thought it might be fun if we did a little experiment and asked you a couple of questions to see how you're doing keeping those commandments. Have you ever stolen anything? Excuse me. Have you ever told a lie? Well, sure, but just little white lies. Not very big ones and not very often, just like everybody else does. What does... What does someone call the person who tells lies? A liar? And the Bible says there's a place in the lake of fire for all liars. Have you ever stolen anything? No. Well, wait a minute. You just told me you were a liar. How can... No, well, not anything big, and it was a long time ago when I was a kid, okay? What do they call someone who has stolen something? A thief? That's right. Have you ever committed adultery? That's an easy one, man. No, I've never committed adultery. That's a big one, and I never do that. Go back and review the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, and he narrows the aperture, brothers and sisters, that if a man looks on a woman with lust... He has committed adultery in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman in lust? Well, yeah, but, but I thought everybody had. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling me I'm going to go to hell or something? The law is perfect. Bringing people to Christ. Okay, enough role-playing. The law was acting as a schoolmaster, guiding the imaginary man. I was trying to act contrite and then contriter and then trembling and terrified, okay? The law was acting as a schoolmaster, bringing the man to Christ so that he could be justified by faith. His conscience, upon which the Bible says has been written the law of God, that's Romans 2.15, told him that his best efforts would always leave him in need of a Savior. Please don't leave here without remembering that scripture. If you're bothered by your conscience, 
Romans 2.12, the law of God is written on your heart. Your conscience, conscience is like an impartial judge sitting in the courtroom of your heart testifying to the truth of God's law. The Savior is looking for the contrite heart which the law produces. The Amplified Bible in Isaiah 66.2 says, But to this one I will look graciously, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who reverently trembles at my word and honors my command. So he's looking for those of us who are of contrite heart and honor his commands. I won't go into definition of contrite and self-remorse and all that that I got stuck on a tangent of. Modern evangelism says never question your salvation. The Bible says something completely different. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. Paul wrote these words, 2 Corinthians 13.5, from prison to the Christians at Corinth. Jesus wants you to feel secure about your salvation. So through Paul, he invites you to test yourself. And in his mercy, he has given you the capacity to do so. Jesus has written the law of God on your heart, called your conscience. So listen to what your conscience says. And if you find that by God's standard, you are a lying thief with wandering eyes... And we didn't get to the Lord's name in vain yet. That's rule number three. If you've doubted your salvation, had a rough day when the flight got bumpy, if you lack zeal to seek and to save the lost, which is the purpose of the church, maybe your repentance has been incomplete and you need a, a recommitment or whatever you want to call it. Please make sure that you have truly thrown yourself at the mercy of the righteous judge for your part in the need for Jesus to having paid the price on the cross for your sins. Make sure that, that you are truly repentant. And to all of us, I say, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is King David's prayer for remission of his sins. With your Bible, please find a quiet place as soon as you can and turn to Psalm 51, read it prayerfully, and make it your own prayer. Have faith in Christ that he will come to the one who is of a contrite heart and know, as Paul also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become what? The righteousness of God in him. Thank you very much for your patience this morning. If the band would come up for one more song, I'll see you again in a moment for a closing prayer.
but I do appreciate your listening to all that.